You are listening to Story Bones, your one-stop shop for literary and screenwriting advice, with your hosts, James and Chip. Thank you for tuning into Story Bones. I'm James Nolan. I am, among other things, the host of the Story Bones podcast. This is episode eight, the ultimate episode, if you will, of season one of Story Bones. And today's topic is releasing your work. This is my favorite part of being a creative person, whether it's putting out a new album, new audiobook, a new novel, or collection of short stories. Nothing beats the rush of finishing a project and showing it to the world. In this episode, Chip and I talk about the concentric circles of releasing your work, from getting out of the woodshed to seeking professional representation, in the screenwriting world at least, as well as selling your work as an indie author at cons and other events, and using tools such as draft digital and find-away voices. Before we get started, the Mungwort pre-order window is here. You can pre-order the novel from today through October 25th, 2021, and the pre-order price is a low, low, low $4.99. That will go up to $9.99 on the release day, October 26th, 2021. And more reviews have come in from my ARC team. Check this one out from Keys. It's an Amazon review titled, Couldn't Put It Down. Keys writes... As an avid reader, only a few books have been able to make me laugh out loud. This was one of them. Not only does Noel describe the disgusting conditions on Lilith's farm in Virginia with vivid imagery and depth, but he brings the farm to life along with the characters. You, as the reader, will root for the underdogs and await the downfall of the antagonists with impatient enthusiasm. Sci-fi has never been a favorite book genre of mine, but if it's all written the way this book is, it'll become my new favorite. Definitely recommend giving this a read. Thank you so much, Keys. That is a fantastic review. The pre-sale is available on Amazon right now. You can visit my Amazon author page and access it there. You can use the search engine, type in Mungwort Knoll, or you can just go to my show notes, and I've put the link to both my author page and the Mungwort page there. And now on with the show. Welcome to the Story Bones Podcast, Episode 8, where we're talking about shipping it, getting your work out into the world so that it's not just cluttering your desk forever, and you can enjoy the advancement of your career and your notoriety and your fan base. Yeah. Subheading, stop worrying about impostering. For sure. Yeah. And I don't know, imposter syndrome or just insecurity. It's can dial it down to its rawest form. I think there's, there's ways to do it and ways not to do it. And I have, I have been guilty of the ways not to do it. And a lot of times if you would shed for too long, then you just like one day put on your fancy shoes and burst out of the woodshed and say, hello world, here I am. <laughs> and it's like, Sh- Calm down. There's there's ways to go about it, and there's ways to slowly build the infrastructure of introducing your work to the world. True. I guess, I don't guess, I know that that's the reason that we're ending with this, is to to give people permission to do it if they're thinking about not doing it or worried about doing it. I think that's one. But I think it's also... Not as scary as a lot of people think. 
to put something out there into the world. It is initially terrifying because of Amazon ratings, because of TV reviewers and movie reviewers. Everybody is afraid of being lambasted for doing something creative. And that comes directly from kindergarten. When somebody did something new and original, everyone, you know, the kids are, who can be brutal, you know, look, that's so, you're so weird. It, it goes from there. And then all the way up to the way that what we were just talking about for 30 minutes is very true in this country is the commoditization, commoditization of the arts, of creativity, where it, if you don't make money doing it or profit off it in some way, or if you can't sell your thing, your widget, whatever that widget is, a, a painting, a comic book, a novel, or a, or an album, then it's not worth anything, which is also untrue. Yeah, I think if you're, I think if you're writing for the money, then you need to go look for a different job because unless you're this rare entrepreneurial sort that figures out how to, what, what's that guy, James Patterson or one of those guys that just has a factory, like. If you're just doing it for the money, your your shit's John Grisham. John, no, there's another guy I'm thinking of. Patterson's one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Who has like a team of writers? Doesn't even really do the do the writing himself. I don't know if that's Patterson. I know he has a formula, and he has all of his ghost writers, and they get credit. Yeah, but he's actually more involved in the process than a lot of people think. Yeah, I. But maybe that is the the thing that you're talking. No, about. No, it's one of the. It's there's. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter, you know. Especially with screenwriting, if you're trying, if you think you're you're doing this all because of the money that screenwriters make, then your your work probably isn't going to stand up that well against people who are doing it because they love the craft and they love the genre that they're writing. Like, I'm going to write up a, a low budget horror just because horrors make money. Horrors make money. It's an important <laughs> syllable there. It really is. But I mean they yeah, do. Yeah. Not not quite as big an upside. Um but No, there's there's some health concerns involved as many. well. Yeah, but you know, someone who understands and loves the genre and loves screenwriting is going to jump in front of you in line almost every time. So so yeah. Well certainly I think what you're talking about is, is trying is, is writing to market. And before we even get to that point, you can you can make money off of writing. You can you can make a money you can make a money you can make money as a journalist if that's what you want to do. You can maybe not anymore, uh, but you used to be able to. You could join the studio system and get on the ground level, and then you're writing for NBC, you're writing for CBS, you're writing for Paramount, whatever it is. But that seems to me like a job more so than what you and I are trying to do. And I don't feel like one is better than the other. It's just a different approach to making money as a writer, making money as a creative person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, getting into the swimming upstream into TV writing is just an entirely different track. I mean, it does, it starts very much the same. I mean, you have to have a pretty sound grasp of the craft and understand structure of episodic television like really well and understand you have to write spec scripts for existing shows and have some original material and and get that out there 
into the right hands and you got to work to be a writer's assistant and work your way into the writer's room eventually. It's just, it's a different path, but I think it still starts with a love of the, of the, the writing part of it. There's no bursting onto the scene and it's about building out the infrastructure for getting your work into the world. Like with a screenwriter, what does it mean to get your work into the world? I mean, it doesn't mean get your stuff produced. It's like, that's way far down the line. And I think that's uh, a trap that a lot of emerging screenwriters fall into is they finish a pretty good script. And then they think the Holy grail is to, is to get that movie made. And it's like, no, not, not yet. Keep your, keep your trousers on. Cause you gotta, there's a lot of, you've got to build a lot of relationships and, Unless it, it's so exceedingly rare that someone steps out with a first time script, I've never heard of it happening and walking in or a first time novel <laughs> for that. Matter. Yeah. I mean, there's, you could probably find a lot more examples of first time novels that they get into the marketplace and, and perform more so than first time scripts, like someone who's doesn't have any industry contact and just write such a phenomenal script that people can't wait to get their hands on it and produce it. I mean, I don't know of it. Yes. I, I don't know of a single anecdote, but there are many examples of people who are seen as these amazing successes in, in the novelist world, but really what has been covered up is the 15 years prior to that yeah. <laughs> of, of writing and struggling and, and, and papering wallpapering their, their apartments with rejection letters. Yeah. 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 That's the overnight success is a myth sort of thing. But I just, I, I am constantly talking to constantly. I probably have one conversation a week with a writer who's working on their craft and trying to get a story into the world. And it's setting realistic goals and expectations is so important so that you don't so that it's not grossly disappointing when you get out and learn the rules of the game and realize that it doesn't mean like this could be just, you could have had three or four producers who read your, your indie feature and just think this is a really good script. You're a really good writer. Well, that just, that just, that's a starting point. And the, the, it's the starting point to build relationships and it's a starting point that great script is going to get you into a lot of rooms. It's going to get your writing and you as a writer on a lot of people's radar, but it's, and it's going to allow you to start to build the infrastructure you need for perhaps that intellectual property, but more than likely it's going to be the next few that you write. And so it's that interim stage and it starts with where we left off the previous time when you build your peer group through writers groups and the people that you cultivate that can read your material and give you good, solid feedback and critical, constructive criticism and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff, that, that's where it starts. And the next concentric circle is you get something where you're all, at this point you're just rearranging teacups and you're like, it's ready for the next concentric circle outside of outside of my writer's group well who is that and how do you find them because it's not sending it right to a producer to say hey i'd like 
would you be interested in making my film? Because we got a solicitation like that this week. And what they're saying is, can you find me the financing for my film? It's like, well, I don't know you. I've never heard of you. And this could be a great script. And I have 10 features of my own that I'd like to find financing for. So at some point, maybe, but you know, it's, it's just not really how it works. I hate to do a quick digression, but what you're talking about is linked weekly to a series of voicemails that I've been getting for about three years. There is another author named James Knoll, and he's written a book on education called Taking Sides. And there is a company out there who constantly calls me and says, hey, James Knoll, I want to work with you. We want to publish your book, Taking Sides. Uh, and it's just that, that type of unsolicited, we can help you or I need help. Like, what the fuck? Who are you? I, I don't know. <laughs> First of all, I'm not that James Knoll. But second of all, even if I, I have fielded them for a knife in the back and burn all the bodies and some of the other ones I've done. And it's still, the answer is no. I, I, this is not how that works. It, it, it's it's what you're talking about. It's It's through meeting other people. And so I would say in the, in the indie author world, there comes a point where you start wanting to market your work. And the first thing, and I know we're not talking about marketing, but this is definitely going to where you're, where you're leading. One of the first things that I read about and that benefited me in terms of creating that second concentric circle Mm -hmm. was the idea of creating the body of work where I was selling things, not just to comic cons and people make fun of uh, the, the, the indie artists at comic cons all the time, sometimes for good reason. Maybe people made fun of me. I don't care. It's just, it's a, it's a method of marketing at sales, but the goal there wasn't just to sell books. To me, that was somewhat secondary. I wanted to cover my expenses, obviously, otherwise you're not making money and you can't do it for very long, but it was, it was to build that email list to be able to have the concentric circle started at due North five or four years ago with the the local CRRL Comic-Con, which was literally three hours long in a library. And then the very next one I did was Awesome Con. And I went from having zero people on my email list to 150 people and was able to cover expenses. And then from there, I was slowly drawing that circle. I hit due south about two and a half years. And, and, and then you go around full circle to where I was before the pandemic hit. And I, I was done with cons for a little while because it's, it's, it's exhausting. You spend your whole weekends doing it and, and some of them aren't really worth it. But you don't, you're building a fan base. You're building people who, if you have a thousand people on your list and a 50% engagement rate, that is fantastic. That means 500 people are always opening up your emails and checking out what it is that you're doing next if you're, if you're staying consistent. It, it creates a group of people who are interested in what you, what you write. And then by hitting those same events multiple times in a row, I, I met people who I, I made fans. There were, there were people like, Hey, you got a new one out? And I was like, I got a new one out. And they would come and they would buy it and we would talk for a little while. And then I had a, f- a friend too, an acquaintance, I would say, who I would see all over the place, all over Virginia, all over now on the East Coast in that concentric circle. That second one went from my small group of students and teacher friends and my wife and the kids who are reading it and my brother and my dad who are rooting for me to outside of the family. These are people who 
didn't feel like they had to <laughs> support me in some way. They wanted to. And that was just step one. But that's what you're talking about in terms of, of creating that, that next wave. Still indie, but it's there. Yeah, and I mean, that's totally different for screenwriters. Like, it's very similar for directors. Like, if you're an indie director, building that your first concentric circle is fans and people that will consume your product. And if you're an author, that first concentric circle is like building those first thousand readers, et cetera. Well, you don't have that. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way with screenwriting. And that's why it's, that's why it's so tricky because that, and therein lies the essence of the misunderstanding about bursting out of the woodshed and just trying to get your film made because it's like, well, now it's done. Now it's time to reach my, my next group is the people that are going to watch this film. But it's like, no, because you don't, you don't sell your screenplay to the people who are going to enjoy the story. And that's why I think mm -hmm. it's challenging and a little bit murky is what, what is that? Who, who's in that next circle? And you talk about consultants and hucksters, and there's a slew of them out here that know how daunting that stage is. And so they position themselves as people with industry bona fides who can give you all the advice you need to build that bridge and they charge you three, 400 bucks for a seminar or 1500 bucks for a series of coaching sessions. And I've paid for these coaching sessions and I've met with a really, who I thought was a really great coach, but there it's, it's still, uh, it's still a scam because all of what they offer you is available for free in the way of information and guidance if you, if you know how to network, if you know how to get out there and meet writers who are working in the business and who will have coffee with you once a month for free or hop on a phone call and you can pry them with a few questions. And then eventually it's similar information that you'll get from your manager. But there's, there's a whole industry that has cropped up and I, I just, with very few exceptions, they're bottom feeders and they're people that are, there's so many for every success story and every little quote they have on their website about how awesome it was to meet with Janine and what a difference she made in their career. They took another 99 people's money who never went anywhere. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's, it sucks at spirit medicine. It's like, we do some of the same things, but I don't charge for it. It's like, I could I could charge for my time because I, I, I know I have proven results in working with other writers who then got their material and, and got laurels and contests and had meetings with reps and things like that. So it's like, yeah, but it's like, it just feels kind of scummy because it's like, it's a creative community and I should be working with just enough writers that I can handle in the few extra hours a week where I give them a little bit of advice or hop, give them notes once every couple of months. And if everybody operated that way, then that, that next circle wouldn't be so murky. So as, as you know, if I'm talking to screenwriters, it's like, it's not go out and pay consultants, ignore all that stuff, continue to learn, double down on the craft. And when it comes time to get your material out there, that's when you send things to contests. Start, you, you wrote that feature and it's great. Take everything you learned and write a 15 page short and get that into a shorts contest. Cause you could do that in a few weeks and start to build your laurels and people like, like, ah, oh, I want to go write to producers. I want to get, chill out. 
It doesn't work that way. You got to get people, you have to have accolades attached to your work or attached to your material that will make people in that next concentric circle, the third one, take a look at you. And so people skip over that and like, well, I, I keep getting rejected. I, I, don't, I don't even get into the, the quarterfinals of these contests. It's like, well, maybe your writing's not ready. The only other way is if you have someone, if you can get access to someone who's in the industry and is working as an agent, as a manager, or as a working writer, who, or an attorney, uh, entertainment attorney, who isn't representing you, but, you know, is your sister-in-law, and she'll read your stuff and say, this is great, you know what, I'm going to introduce you to a manager, or I'm going to introduce you to a writer who would probably mentor you as you navigate this next stage of your career. But that's why it's so tricky with screenwriting is that you don't go right to your, you don't go right to the buyer. Hello again, everybody. I'm just interrupting our podcast to let you know that the Mungwort pre-order window is here. You can pre-order the novel from today through October 25th, 2021. And the pre-order price is a low, low, low $4.99. That will go up to $9.99 on the release day, October 26, 2021. And more reviews have come in from my ARC team. Check this one out from Keys. It's an Amazon review titled, Couldn't Put It Down. Keys writes, As an avid reader, only a few books have been able to make me laugh out loud. This was one of them. Not only does Noel describe the disgusting conditions on Lilith's farm in Virginia with vivid imagery and depth, but he brings the farm to life along with the characters. You, as the reader, will root for the underdogs and await the downfall of the antagonists with impatient enthusiasm. Sci-fi has never been a favorite book genre of mine, but if it's all written the way this book is, it'll become my new favorite. Definitely recommend giving this a read. Thank you so much, Keys. That is a fantastic review. The pre-sale is available on Amazon right now. You can visit my Amazon author page and access it there. You can use the search engine, type in Mungwort Knoll, or you can just go to my show notes and I put the link to both my author page and the Mungwort page there. And now back to the show. Well, first of all, can I mention that every time you say bona fides, I always think of, oh, brother, where art thou? And the first thing yeah. I want to say to you is, I'm the paterfamilias. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, Great but uh, it's, I think it's the second time in a row that you said that. But um, it's so interesting that you say that because... I started doing the indie stuff because of my involvement in punk rock. And as there was no reason not to do it ourselves, it never occurred to any of the the people in the bands that I played with to not do it ourselves. There were never any gatekeepers. We always, we never, we weren't great businessmen. Let me, let me, let me start with that. We always kind of, you know, snubbed our noses at people who tried to use their music as, as a business. And I believe now that was wrongheaded because we could, if we were smart, we would have done that and we would have figured out a way to make money doing it. And I know there's bands out there who can't do it and, and they use that as their concentric circle platform. They start on their own and they build out, but. There was never any doubt in any of our minds in The Sore Losers, Beef Jerky, The Minus Men, Clark's Ditch, any of the other bands that I played in or played with, that we weren't going to make our own music, our own albums, and write it ourselves and sell it ourselves. It was it was always a part of that. So it always baffled me as 
somebody who also wanted to write novels, because I always have, that there was this gatekeeper system that I had to go. There were, there were several stages. It used to be a long time ago. First stage was you had to sell your short stories to publications. But by the time I came around, this is the mid to late 90s, those publications were starting to go away because of the burgeoning internet. They, they don't exist anymore. They, they exist online. But in the 50s and 60s, you could make a living selling short stories in, to uh, not, not a good one, <laughs> but you can make money selling short stories to uh, a variety of magazines. Stephen King started out that way. He wasn't making a living, but he was making Who? some money and he was building his name. Stephen King. I'm kidding. All of his Night Shift and Skeleton Crew, those were all taken from magazines that he sold those short stories to. And it, it proves to the next level that you can write and that will, people will want to read your stuff. But the, the after that, you were supposed to get an agent somehow. And there's books, the, the, the writer's guide books that were out there. And I, I sent my letters out to you know multiple agents and, again, papered my office and apartments with their rejections. And it, it always seemed impossible to get past that first rung. It was because they were in New York or, or Chicago, maybe a little bit in L.A., I would have to move there to get to know people, to get into their magazines, to get into their circle, to get an agent, to be able to sell to a publishing house and get somebody to even begin to look at my stuff. And and there were and it wasn't just me who was frustrated by this. It was a lot of people to the point where when Amazon came around and they started running their, I think it was called the Break Amazon Breakthrough Novelist Contest or something like that thousands of people were sending their stuff in and it was a free contest. You didn't have to pay for it. And then the the prize, the, the three prizes, I think were you got a, Amazon would publish, or I think it was Penguin at first. Penguin would publish, would give you a, an advance and it would publish your novel. And then there was a, a, that was a grand prize. And then a first and second prize. They ran that for several years and then they started their own publishing. And by the time they started their own publishing, the indie publishing revolution was in the way it was underway. And that's not to say that there are no more agents or publishing houses anymore. Obviously there are. But what I understood about that was what I understood about music, which is what my friend Bill Harris understands about painting and my friend Jamie Bronson, uh, who who he's the one who illustrated the cover for the rabbit and the jaguar or the snake that you like so much or that you that you tolerated understood about the acrylics that he produces, which is you don't have to do that if you don't want to. You might not get a huge global or national or even regional audience, but you can make money if you are creative and you do stuff and you bring it out to the world and say, I'm selling this stuff. And that's Bill Harris makes a living do it, doing it. Jamie sells his paintings all the time. And a lot of people writing novels decided that that's what they wanted to do as well. Yeah. I am not saying that they're all good. If Go ahead and read my, my first draft of A Knife in the Back, and it is littered with errors. It's embarrassing. But I had to do it because it was the first stepping stone to getting outside that first circle and building the second circle so that you and I last summer and currently can start creating that ladder from the second circle to the third yeah. circle. Yeah. I mean, there is a – that's analogous in the filmmaking world to doing short films and – there again springs from the people that you meet in your inner circle and your writers groups could be the people that you also collaborate with on shorts. And you're talking about the entrepreneurial side of things where you put in a lot of time, effort and hours before ever making that first sale. And there's a lot of directors and writers 
who have, especially directors and a lot of directors, they're hyphenate and they're directing big stuff. They're directing Netflix movies and things like that. And you go look at their IMDb page and all, all that they've done up until that point was six different shorts. But that shows people that you can see a project through and that you can direct a project start to finish. And hey, that one's pretty good. Those other ones are forgettable. But that's and that's an awesome thing because, you know, the constantly the tools are evolving that allow people at that level who are building out their their second circle to go out and make a short like the stuff you can do on an, an, an iphone 12 pro with a gimbal is five years ago 10 years ago you couldn't get anywhere near that without a full filmmaking rig and then add in all of the creative decisions and production decisions you can make because you have such a tiny package and and other opportunities open up so again it goes back to like wanting this shortcut to having your feature film made and it's just like you're you're skipping over so much it's like building those relationships and i think that's where as an indie filmmaker it's it's uh you know be working on the best features you can but build that community of people that will go out on their weekends or Lilla style and, and make a feature for next to nothing. And then, I mean, a short and then make your next short, get them into festivals. That's how a lot of talent is found these days is from the shorts market. There's no ROI in shorts. So you have to do it cheap or do it for the sake of investing in your career. Cause no investor is going to get in and shorts cause there's no way to make your money back. But it's interesting because what you're talking about really is the medium Things are so complex and so, and I think rightfully so, expensive when you're producing films, shorts, features, whatever, that it's almost necessary that you have some of these these levels, that it needs to, to be in there. But it really is about the medium, whereas with what I'm trying to do with novels, I don't even need to print novels anymore. It can all be digital and there is no cost at all in that. It's just me. And the sweat equity, paying for some editing services, and a cover. And you're talking about a maximum, if you're doing it right, $2,000 to produce a novel. Uh, that's not including marketing. Whereas if you want to produce a, a short that would get those laurels, it's at least $25,000. And it really is. it really does come down to a matter of money. And it's because of the nature of what you're doing. I, I can do a lot of this on my own. Whereas it's it's nearly impossible to create something of, of value of worth with a, with a film. You need all of those working parts. You need to pay all those people. You need that budget. There was a movie that came out called The Vast of Night. I don't know if you've seen that. It's an indie film. It's an alien abduction uh, film set in the fifties. It is really really good. Uh, we watched it at the beginning of the pandemic. But you just mentioned something about crew and doing amazing things with 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 cameras nowadays. And there there is this continuous shot that they did. I won't describe it because it's impossible to describe without going on and on, but it was incredible. And I read about it and the guy who produced it, who, the director, sorry, he put together a, veterans for his crew and complete newbies, people who had never shot a film, who just were interested. And he said it was the newbies that actually created this amazing shot, this this moving continuous shot using a combination of like go-karts and skateboards and drones and all sorts of shit. And he said it, the only reason they were able to do it was because 
the new people were saying, well, why can't we do it that way? To yeah. the people who said, I have never done it that way before, therefore we can't. I just thought that was interesting. Uh, but it really, it, it does come down to medium. It takes a lot of money to produce a film. It does not take a lot of money to produce a novel. Yeah. I mean, it, look, it, it doesn't take 25 grand to make a, a festival short. You can make one for two grand. It just depends on how, what you need to get it done. And that's the beauty now. Those people that made those gorilla shots that you were just talking about, I guarantee you if you had the right concept, those guys could get out there with their gorilla filmmaking mentality and make a, a film a lot shorter, I mean, a lot uh, cheaper. They remind me of my friend uh, Larry Hinkle, who he, he helped out on the production over the summer. Yeah. They're just people who can do things and they have imagination. Yeah. And they're really, really creative. Especially if... That's the type of person. Especially if you're somewhere that's not L.A. I mean, L.A. is tough because anywhere you go making a film these days, if you don't have a permit, the cops are going to shut you down. (laughs) That's one thing that Elizabeth and Peter, their their mouths were dropping open when I said, no, Parks and Rec is basically our film office. And they said, when we're driving around downtown doing this, be careful. And that was yeah. it. And they went, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's it. That's all we had to worry about. Yeah. It's like here you have to go through LAPD for Christ's sake. So wait, all right. So we, I want to, I want to refocus here. So this whole episode is about shipping it, right? Getting it out in front of people. And we, you and I have been working on doing that with silver hammer and we'll go into that second, but it's, it would be interesting to me to hear your take on the screenwriter going from, okay, I got people interested and now I'm making a couple of shorts or I've written a couple of shorts and maybe I've even produced a couple of shorts at that second level. I've got a couple of laurels. And then you're leaping up into that third one where it's almost professional or maybe it is professional. I, I don't even know. So what would be your definition of that for the, for the screenwriter? Well, if you're full on indie, then there's a lot of people that there's, you know, as many anecdotes as there are um, assholes at a baseball game there who just figure out how to make their own movie, you know, their own feature. And that's awesome. And you go out and you find the money to make a feature for a hundred grand. And like, that might sound like a lot for, you know, someone who's sitting in their basement, but you know, you know, 10 people that could, would give you 10 grand if they really believed what you were doing and you could demonstrate your ability to, to get it done. So there is the full, guerrilla mentality is is that so that getting your work out that third version on the indie thing is just bleed and and get it done and bring the right people together like i'm i'm producing a a hundred thousand dollar indie right now with a writer that i know who's writing a bunch of stuff that's been produced and we have two lead actors who are all who are credited and are familiar faces to anybody who watches a lot of film and television, but no one, a lot of, very few people could tell you their name. And we're just, we're figuring out how to get it done for around a hundred grand. We could write a, a story that, a feature horror that, that could be shot in, in Spotsylvania County for a hundred grand. It's not Lilith, but we could do it and we probably should do it. Because it's a great business prospect. If we have a, a great horror that we could shoot for a hundred grand that has two or three people, two or three cast members that have to commit to it for longer than three hours to shoot a scene, which is the situation with this this one we're dealing with now, it's a great business you're talking, prospect. You're talking about feature length. You're talking about yeah, feature, feature length. Yeah, feature length. Yeah. 
so yeah, I mean, I, and, and me as well, like I, I, I'm totally stoked because there, there are people I can talk to, you know, to start to build financing around a hundred thousand dollar film and crowdfunding and all sorts of things that's within reach. But grinding on the indie level is absolutely like once your material has matured in that second ring is to go out there and use whatever accolades you've accumulated and the connections you've made and the community that's springing up to garner the support to make a very low budget indie. And, And that is support with other filmmakers that really like, what do they want? Well, they want to be a part of a project that gets finished and gets out to festival because I'm a cinematographer and I haven't shot a feature yet. So you're not going to go look for a, a cinematographer who shot seven features cause they're looking to get paid. That's mm-hmm. where they are. They've worked to get there. So you, you build that by an, building your organic community. So that's, that's kind of the indie route. And then, the traditional like fighting my way into the career route is reps. That third concentric circle is reps. It's manager, agent, attorney, and, and all are interchangeable. And if you had one of the, well, there's slight rules that are changing about who can set up projects and things like that. But if you have a manager who's a hundred percent loves you, loves your work, is super invested in it. They're going to get you into rooms. You're going to meet producers. They're going to help you build your career. But it's the same thing uh, with an attorney. You know, if you have an attorney that's a really well-connected entertainment attorney, they can get your material to talent. They can hook you up with producers that they know. Same thing. Agents are a little different, a little tougher to net, and you're not going to net them right out of the gate for the most part with just read my script, take me on. They like somebody that is kind of, they're, they're kind of at the cusp of the outer edge of the third ring and beginning of the fourth when you're really starting to do something and they see how they can build on your success and your track record and what you're doing and start to make some money. I mean, they are... And this is still in the indie, in, in the indie route, so... No, none of, this, none of that's the indie route. Oh, I thought you were still talking about how in the indie route you could get to that point once you get those well, you, you, laurels and the grind and then you can bump up to that next level. Well, you could, but no, I, I shifted from the indie route saying if you're just leading with your material and you're not a filmmaker, then the third ring is reps. If you're an indie grinder, oh, okay. the third ring is blood, sweat, and tears make your first low-budget gotcha. indie. Okay. And then continue to build out your portfolio. I would guess, and this isn't true for everybody, that the indie auteur, the indie director is probably not too interested in being involved with the studio system and will continue to work independently as much as he or she feels it necessary to do. Mm, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think, yeah, I don't think you can really make the generalization. I think making movies for under features for under a million dollars is really painful. And so I don't think you're going to find a lot of directors who want to stay in the sub even $2 million range. I think most... So they will jump up out of the indies into that next level with the the reps and everything. It's not really a binary thing like black and white. There's shades of gray in between. You just want to have more money and more resources to make your next movie. You, you, if you make a movie for $100,000 that comes out really good, you want to use that to go out and attract more 
higher and different talent that will allow you to raise more money so that you can make your next film for a few million. And so everybody wants more money to when you're when you're down at that level wants wants more money to do their their art their craft to, to have greater resources now i think there are directors that never want to leap out of the 10 to 12 million dollar range which is where you start to jump into the studio model where their their way of putting together a film and the finance model and the marketing, the the cost of marketing, and everything else takes takes quite a quantum leap at that point. But I think there's a lot of people that you know are like the arcade fire model, where it's just like we're going to produce at at a top top level, but we're still going to do it our way and own it. And I think there's a lot of directors that do that that never graduate to making thirty million dollar movies because eight to 10 is a pretty good sweet spot. You can attract talent. I mean, look at the Duplass brothers. They make a ton of stuff and they do it all on a very low budget model. And they do favored nations where everybody works for a very low rate, but gets a cut of the back end. And Mm -hmm. they've been really successful with that. I just love that concentric circle analogy that you made because we're going from local to regional and you and I could, if we wanted to produce that hundred thousand dollar horror movie set in Stafford or Spotsy. And we could also set up our own local uh, movie festival and make it a thing. I, I've done, I did that with the Fredericksburg Book, Book Festival. It took five years to establish it, but now people are expecting it to happen every year and they love it. You just can go out and you do have to raise the money, but it's significantly less than what you and I, or what you're talking about at that, that third level of, of movie making, moving out into that fourth level of movie making. Yeah. And it's always, I think, I said this before, it's so much more attractive to do that. I would, I would much rather live in that area and build it out and be like, no, I, I, I did this. This is mine. Totally. I mean, I love the indie model. I love indie films. There's a different flavor to them. There's different risks that can be taken. And I, I've talked to when, you know, these new relationships I'm, I'm forging. I tell people, it's like, yeah, I'm, I have higher budget stuff. I have television stuff that's out there with my reps and that we send to readers. And that's great. If something like that got picked up, that'd be awesome. But if I looked forward, had a crystal ball to look forward at my career for the next 15 years and all it was was sub $8 million indies, I would be delighted. You know, I think what's attractive about the studio model is once you build clout making movies at that level then suddenly the studios want you and people want you and they want to give you $60 million to make this movie and they want to pull you on and direct uh, the next Marvel movie and all that stuff. And that's great. So the tools, if you are an indie writer, I mean, there, we've talked about the, the, the tools of just the production tools, but in terms of getting your stuff out there and really using the internet for what it's worth, Mm-hmm. to be able to to make some money and to, to get your stuff out there. One of the catchphrases is multiple streams of income. And I'm lucky enough to have experience with music gear that and and teaching and, and narrating that I felt that I could create my own audiobooks. But that has definitely been the only consistent stream of income that I've gotten from doing this. And it hasn't been tons of money, but it's been okay. And I don't do any advertising for it. But you can put your own audiobooks out there now, and it sends it out to library systems and Spotify and all over the place. 
Did I say it was Findaway Voices? Findawayvoices.com. Yeah, I was going to say, that. what's the tool? <laughs> <laughs> the tool is Findaway Voices. Uh, you have to have all of the stuff done prior, but you know, if you have, if you produced an audiobook yourself or gotten one produced, you can upload it to them, and they do take it. They're the middleman, but in the and eventually you might not want to use them, but it's a great tool to to get that type of exposure or or marketing out there. In terms of selling your own eBooks, draft to digital, draft numeral to digital. Well, basically, if you formatted your Word file correctly. It turns it into an EPUB and a Mobi and a PDF and sends it out to wherever it is that people download EPUBs, Mobis, and PBS to, to get on their readers or their phones or their devices. And you can price it yourself. You can adjust for both Findaway Voices and for Draft2 Digital. You can adjust prices by region. Um, those are two really good tools just to get your stuff out there. And the draft to digital gives you a universal link that you can use on your landing pages when you're setting things out through your email to your email list that will say, you know, hey, here's the hive or the rabbit, the jaguar, the snake or mungwort. And then there's a landing page that has all of the different places that you can buy that ebook. And then, of course, there's there's Amazon, uh, kdp.amazon.com. You can sell strictly there and take advantage of all their stuff, or you can go wide and not go to uh, the, the, the KDP stuff. But those three together are a good place to start. I see. <laughs> so, All right, thank you very much. It's been a great season, everybody. I think the something equivalent for screenwriters is Coverfly. Coverfly is good because you can set up an account there and it's one of these places where it's the a triage point to all the different contests. So you upload your project there once, like it'll show you every horror contest that has a deadline coming up in the next every so often. And you just serve it out from there so you're not constantly filling out different applications and all this stuff. And it's a great way to see in one place what what contests are coming up. So if you are in that in that stage of things where you're trying to build some laurels, then Coverfly is, is really good to for contest submissions. And let's see, I've started using Craft this week, and I really love it. It's a note taking app, and it replaced my more nerdy note taking app because it it's a lot cheaper. I was spending $15 a month for Rome Research because it does some really cool things. But then I discovered Craft because it actually has iOS apps. But for people who are noodling and, and writing stories and, and keeping digital files of ideas and, and sparks and inspirations and writing up things, and now I write up all my pitch documents and things like that in a platform like this nice. because it's centralized and like I never write anything in word or pages anymore because it's just like you wind up with all these files and like these <laughs> the, there's a lot of writing apps now that are built on top of databases and so you you mm -hmm. don't you don't I mean prior to using a database based a database based note and document system I would have log lines for my features in like seven different places. I'd have them over in this Word doc and then I updated that Word doc and that's got the newer log line. And 
then I have my note taking app where I was noodling with the log line. And next thing you know, like, which one is the, which one is the most recent one, et cetera. It's like, right. Yeah. Now I just don't do any of that type of work except in my database based note taking app, whether it's craft or Rome or one of these things. And there's only one iteration that lives and it's, and it's cloud backed up. So it's, it's always secure. Well, this has been a really cool eight part, 16 hour talk with you, Chip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And once we edit it down to eight hour, eight hour talk, I think it's going to be, it'll be a rich uh, experience for aspiring creatives to get a, you know, both a, a glimpse at the difference between screenwriting and and prose and nonfiction writing and, um, you know, pick up a few rules of the game along the way. I think so, too. So we are signing off for this season. Look to us for more stuff. We're going to try to get on other podcasts, I think. I would like it if you and I, not just me, tried to get on other podcasts. We come as a package deal, as the kids well, say. I'd be happy to do that. I think that would be cool for season two. But until then, everybody enjoy your creative life. That was a terrible ending. Can you end it better than me? Yeah, um, of course I can. All I can say is love the craft and be patient, be persistent, be kind, and good things will happen to you and for your work. Fuck yeah, Chip. That was, that was perfect. Awesome. All right, everyone, take it easy. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in this week and this season. Chip and I will be back more sooner than later. We have some ideas for season two that we're kicking around, including doing more out-of-pocket interviews with other authors and other book marketers. And if you have a topic or an idea you'd like us to pursue, let us know. I've put a link to a Google suggestion form in our show notes. I can't guarantee we'll do everything everyone suggests, but if someone submits an idea that strikes our fancy, we'll do it. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Mungwort. Just go to my Amazon author page and you can find Mungwort there. You can search Mungwort Knoll in Amazon, but I did make it easier for you and I put links to both in the show notes. Thanks again, everybody. And like Chip said, be kind, be cool, and keep on writing.